Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Mental health affects many, if not all of us, at some point in our lives. In today's episode, we will examine the particular stressors that can affect those working in academia. To inform this discussion, we are joined by Dr. Sahar Graham. Hello, my name is Dr. Sahar Graham and I'm a senior lecturer based in the United Kingdom. I teach a variety of different subjects, including marketing, leadership, mainly focusing on the UK events industry. Our second guest is Dr. Stefano Zucca. Hello, I'm Dr. Stefano Zucca. I'm a neuroscientist. I am a postdoc in, uh, at the University of Turin in Italy and uh, my main interest in is understanding how our external environment uh, um, is perceived by our brain and guides our innate behaviors. And recently I got interested in uh, mental health among uh, academics. Finally, we're joined by Silvia Gomez. Hello, I'm Silvia Gomez and I'm the Secretary General of YERU, that is a network of young research European universities. Um, and I work very much on policy developments and uh, following what our universities can do to improve the higher education system. So welcome everyone. We're here to talk specifically about the role of mental health in higher education. Perhaps I could begin by asking a fairly simple question, and that is, what unique challenges do you think academics face when it comes to mental health? The reason why I'm, I'm on this podcast and the reason why I feel so passionately about it was that I had a mental health breakdown um, as a result of stress at work. And that was the first time in my entire professional life that that's ever happened to me. So that was a bit of a steep learning curve. Certainly, I think in academia, there's this perception that when it's our summer holidays, that um, students go off and we all go back and have these fantastic long holidays. And that's not the reality of working in higher education. Um, Higher education can be brutal. It's no different to any other job, but there are a lot of constraints within higher education, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure to deliver fantastic teaching, a lot of pressure in terms of research outputs. I'm lucky I have a permanent contract, but I know there are many colleagues who don't have permanent contracts who don't have that stability. But for me, workload was a real issue for me to the point that I simply couldn't cope. It's one of those things that I think is unspoken. Nobody wants to talk about academics' mental health. We talk a lot about students and how students are suffering and they have had a rough time, particularly with the pandemic and online learning. But there's very little consideration given to us academics and how we've been coping and the pressures on us. And at the end of the day, we're just human, really. So mental health affects us in a big way. And I don't really think it's something that the sector has fully recognised or acknowledged. No, I think that's definitely true. There is much more of an emphasis on student mental health and less of an emphasis on the faculty's mental health. I think there's also a little bit of a historical aspect. So if you look in literature, for example, you start seeing um, studies about mental health among medical students, undergrad students. And uh, I think only like in the past 10 years, there has been an increase in what we know about mental health for academics. And that started started from PhD students. And now, luckily, in the last couple of years, we have information about postdocs. So I think it's like something that has some sort of like natural way of developing. And it is now uh, clear that uh, uh, mental health is kind of something that 
we need to care about across all career stages. Uh, this is at least what I saw when I was like just, uh, looking for information about uh, and statistics about mental health in academia. I spent 20 years of my career before becoming a publisher in academia. So I have also insight into this. When, when I was a lecturer at Vanderbilt, I just felt that the job never goes away, <laughs> that it's always there. You know, summer holidays, holidays, weekends. I mean, I worked a lot on the weekends, grading papers, preparing lectures, doing research, things like that. So I'm wondering how you guys have found trying to balance work life with the pressures of these things that are hanging over, you know, you have the tenure track, you have teaching, you know, you have to wake up Monday morning and be on and, you know, you need to prepare for that on Sunday a lot of the time. So how do you guys balance your work-life balance with academia? I think, to be honest, I've taken a different attitude before my breakdown than I did after it. So before my breakdown, I was constantly work, 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 work. And you kind of said to yourself, okay, we're in a semester, we've got 10 weeks or whatever. I can, if I can just get through those 10 weeks, then I'll be fine. So you almost accepted that it was okay to work weekends. And, you know, when you said about marking and grading essays at weekends, I mean, that just rings such a bell, Daniel, because that's what we do. And you almost see it as part of the job you kind of accept it and then it was almost a case of I can't just get through I can just get through these next 10 weeks then I'll be okay and what I've and then you get through the end of that and you'd come out with a cold or something because your body would be so exhausted I think my attitude now is that I'm I'm much better at saying no I think I know that sounds oh yeah that's right (laughs) you have to be able to set boundaries and say no Exactly. I mean, I, I've, you know, I've, I've got a, a daughter who's coming up to some really important exams. I have a husband, I have a personal life and I'm no good to my students if I'm exhausted. I'm not going to perform my best. So for me, it's been about saying no. It's about setting boundaries, which I feel is really important. And it's really about prioritizing. And at the end of the day, me saying, well, actually, I'm not perfect. I'll make mistakes, but I'm going to do the very best I can. But I'm, I absolutely, and this has been my mantra since my breakdown, I refuse to do anything that's going to make me sick again. And I'm so passionate about that. Well, I would love to bring Sylvia into the conversation. I'm wondering what your take on this is, what, what, what perspective you have. I have to agree with, uh, with Sehar that, uh, especially when we were looking into COVID, one of the key priorities for our rectors were very much the students' mental health. You know, but maybe in a way of being useful as a community, including their staff and their researchers to their students. You know, I've been looking a little bit also into for preparing a little bit for this uh, podcast to different initiatives that are uh, on mental health for researchers. I think the awareness and raising awareness about the fact that there is a problem is becoming a bit more evident. So we have different European projects that are really trying to bring this uh, issue more up front. So there's definitely things happening, you know. Now that we are maybe on the, are we still, do we have a right framework uh, or not? Uh, And I think still we have many different issues that surround the world of academia and research that are definitely wrong. And um, that relates a little bit with the competitive environment in which we are and um, and how we try to perform or how institutions are trying to perform to see who's better no, than others. That's maybe definitely a, a not a good approach. 
every time I speak with my colleagues about mental health uh, and uh, what I really like is to try to get their perspective, whether they are undergrad students, PhD students or uh, PI. One of the mainstream is always uh, about competition and pressure, job insecurity, but there are also many other small different sources of stress that all together create this sort of more kind of uh, environment where we feel under quite a lot of pressure. And that sometimes is just linked, for example, to the experiments, whatever, sometimes things they don't work. And um, that's not much about uh, uh, competition, but it's mainly like every day there are some stressors that sometimes we don't even realize how many we have to face. And so sometimes we forget that actually we are quite good in managing a lot of small stressors and uh, and i think when you make this you make people realize this uh, you can also um, make them realize that there might be a way to act in a way that uh, all these small stressors will have a lower impact on uh, their well-being and their mental health so what i want to say is that Sometimes there's a tendency to just look at the final stage where we all know there's a lot of competition, there's a lot of pressure, we have to meet metrics, but there are all other small stressors that each of us has that can be tackled in a way that they might prevent to build up one on top of the, uh, of the other. And so um, I always try to look not just to uh, look at the tip of, uh, of mm, whatever is uh, pressuring us, but uh, trying to create some sort of like a circle where we spread all the stressors and try to balance them and in a way that they reduce the impact that they have on our well-being. I think that was a really fantastic point that Stefano's made. And if you think about those small little stressors and how they add up, to something that can become quite overwhelming. And that's just only in the workplace. If we take all of us as individuals, we've all got things going on in our lives, haven't we? We've either got children or husbands or wives or partners. Maybe we've got financial problems. Nobody knows what's going on in somebody else's mind. We all turn up to work and we plod on and we carry on. But, you know, we may have disabilities. Um, And I think... When you're in a work situation that gets stressful, sometimes people don't want to talk about the fact that they are human and other things are happening in their, in their lives as well. And this is where we really need to normalise the conversation around mental health. Some things that we also face even in our, uh, in our ways of working. So as, as I mentioned, we, have a, we run here a network of organisations, uh, of universities, so we are not performing research ourselves. <laughs> it's uh, sometimes we are a very small office. We had uh, three people and, uh, and things turned uh, sometimes very stressful because there are periods in which we are requested to work a lot. And one of the things that I've, I've realized also with working with other colleagues, and there are very many different approaches on how we work. And uh, we tend to, to, to maybe give some recipes to how we have approached something and maybe somebody would approach it as well in a certain way. But it's so complex and so difficult to really be able to put yourself in the other person's feet, you know, that, that sometimes these things really don't work. So overall, there is maybe a need to have much more empathy in our working places and not only in research, but in any, you know, in any cooperative or collaborative team working or team uh, 
team office or team experience, you know. But if we if we go back a little bit to the um, to the specificities of the sector, try to see a little bit why maybe uh, among researchers or academics there is still this this pressure that maybe is more notable than in other professions. Um, there are some things that we are now trying also to to work on and overcome that that have been they're definitely let's say in my personal opinion very wrong, huh? and it really is not only the competitive environment and the fact that. Many of the contracts also that researchers have are, are very much based on funding that might be available or not. So you have that kind of insecurity, but also the way in which we are measured and the way in, in which our institutions are measured um, is looking into a very linear way of performance that we have accepted as this is excellent science or this is an excellent researcher. And there is no diversity in this measurement, you know, so there are some activities and some things that we are now trying to push forward and, and to change and at least to speak about this diversity and the need that we have to recognize diverse ways of contributing to excellent research. Um, but we're still not there. And I think that really that really puts a lot of pressure in many of the people that we talk to, or early career researchers or PhD applicants, that they maybe would like to do something else or they feel that they have some things they would like to contribute to, but that's not going to be counting for the professional career. So there is always this kind of looking into, okay, I do this because I think it's the right thing I want to do, but then I also want to make sure that I do these other activities that will count me to progress and advance farther. I had quite a bit of experience with that when I was teaching. When you're a lecturer, there's less of an emphasis on research and more on teaching, but then your teaching doesn't necessarily give you credit to for job security. I, I mean, there's there's just so much uncertainty, and it is it is a question of what counts toward your job and and trying to make that that appearance. Sahar, what would you like to add? I do think organisations, higher education institutes need to take one step back. And that is we need to treat mental illness with a bit more sympathy. And I saw something on LinkedIn saying that, you know, if you'd broken a leg, you would have had flowers and cards, people texting you to see how you are. When you're signed off with stress because you've had a mental health breakdown, it's radio silence. Nobody contacts you. Nobody is texting you to see how you are. You don't get any flowers in the post. It's nothing. And at the end of the day, they're both, you know, you've broken your leg, you've had a mental illness, you're in either situation, you're away from work, you're not well. And sometimes that's very simple question, how are you, goes a long way in actually making somebody feel welcome. And I think until we change our culture within higher education, where we're actually treating mental illness, that's something that shouldn't be discussed in hushed tones. Oh, did you hear about Sarah? Oh yeah, she's got depression. Oh no, she had a full meltdown. When we're not talking about it in sojography terms and actually, you know, talking about this as as an illness, we're never going to get past that first goal. I just, I really just don't think we are. And I do feel with my own experience, sometimes there was an element of being uncomfortable that maybe I keep thinking people don't know how to talk to me because I've had a mental health breakdown. If I'd broken my leg, it would be very clear. How are you doing? Can you walk now? Are you having physio? But when you have, when you're signed off with depression, it's completely different. And this is where we need to change our cultural values, really, in terms of how we talk about this. Well, do you think the universities as an institution, I mean, we've been talking about how culturally we need to make a shift, but do you think the institutions themselves 
need to be more proactive in, in addressing this? Absolutely. Something of a group of universities in the Netherlands um, that is called actually Caring Universities. And they are providing support, but especially kind of courses, but also like forums where people can actually go and talk to, understand certain problems, you know, understand also how to cope with different activities. But they're really trying to offer some support from the institutional perspective. There is also an aspect which is linked to where you work in terms of worldwide. Um, so I can speak from my experience having worked here in Italy and in the UK. And for me, in the UK, it was much easier to talk about mental health, mental illnesses. Uh, for example, here in Italy, we don't really speak much about mental illnesses. There are some bad examples on how uh, specific mental illnesses are treated. Uh, and so when we speak about, for example, the uh, scientific community, we refer to it as, uh, you know, like some sort of global community. But then there are regional differences, and uh, and it's uh, and it's good to see that some countries are actually moving forward. And uh, I'm sure, like countries like Netherlands and uh, Northern Europe, uh, I'm I'm not aware about what happened, for example, in the US. They pay more attention on these aspects. Unfortunately, I have to say that, for example, in uh, uh, in Italy, I'm happy that it's now starting building up uh, hopefully some sort there is some sort of like uh flow from uh, other countries um but depending on where you work and and that's not just the country but can also be the institution there is more or less acceptance on what mental illnesses are and uh, also on how much you should feel comfortable in saying that. So there are some environments, research institutions, which are much more competitive, uh, where saying that you feel too much stress to a point that you might need some support, this might be badly seen from like... Uh, supervisor or other PhD students or in, in a way that you are not caring about research enough that you are able to deal with the stress. Now I'm working in the university, which is slightly less competitive or let's say more relaxed. And I worked also in a research institute here in Italy during my PhD where competition was much higher and you could feel this different. Like you were less likely to say that you were under strong pressure and you might uh, need some support. When I became sick, and I, I think in the end I was off work for about three and a half, four months in, in total, which has been the, the most in my entire working career other than maternity leave, I did think, what should I say? Because people were asking, what should I say? Should I lie? Oh, I've just got a tummy bug. And in the end, I, I went public and I said, no, you know, I was signed off with stress at work. I've got depression. I've got anxiety. And, you know, thank you for asking. And I felt it was my responsibility to say that, but I won't lie. There was a moment where I said, oh my God, am I committing career suicide now? And then the other half of me was like, oh, I don't care. This message is far too important. I've got a massive platform on LinkedIn and I use that to spread the message. And the reason why it was important to me is, you know, I'm a personal tutor, I'm a lecturer. I'm involved in pastoral care for my students. They tell me things that are affecting them. Um, and I sit there and I listen and I advise. Sometimes I'm just a sympathetic ear to them. And I think it would be doing a not, it wouldn't be doing justice to something like mental health if I wasn't to disclose my own 
problems that I've been having, not for sympathy, but just for them to understand that, look, lecturers are human too. And then the single group of people who approached me and asked me how I were, I do wonder, other than cultural differences between institutions and countries, we're talking about generations and how different generations within society perceive mental health from those that perceive it as a sign of weakness to those like my students who, you know, asked me how I was and told me that they felt empowered when they read my my post. And if I can make a difference that way, then I'm all for it. I mean, there does seem to definitely be a, a, a generational shift. And I wonder how this will affect professionals as they move into academia. Stefano, I wanted to come back to you talking about, you know, your international experience. And I know that you're a mental health first aider. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. When I started uh, getting interested in uh, in mental health uh, in academia, and I started uh, everything with just a journal club on uh, on an article, uh, then I was starting searching around and looking around and see whether there was uh, some training course that could help me um, understand better what mental illnesses are. And uh, um, in the UK, there's, there is this uh, um, program which is called Mental Health First Aid um, that is available for everyone. And uh, I was lucky that uh, at my university, so I worked at the University College London, uh, they were offering uh, uh, this course uh, free. By attending the course, you could become uh, a first a mental health first aider as you become a first aider. And then you can become basically a, a reference person for your department so that people can contact and uh, uh, can ask you questions. What I found most uh, useful is the training about uh, how you listen to people. Uh, because at the end, one of the first uh, things that matters when it comes to people struggling is that usually, well, usually, it depends on who you met, but um, people just ask you how you feel and they don't really listen to your answer. It's more like conversation. And But if you learn how to properly listen to people and uh, the overall idea of what they teach you in this course is to, to listen to them, to them without judging. So whatever they say, it's fine. And you are just like there to listen to uh, what are the issue. Um, this is already like a big part of support that you need. And then uh, the second part of the course is basically um, aimed to give you all the instruments to let people know what kind of options they have. So you will be able to recognize whether someone uh, is um, needs some support, and then you will have all the resources to uh, give them some options, whether it's the contact of uh, uh, the government support, there are helplines. In, in the UK, at least from my experience, there are many sources of support available, and people don't use, usually have access to them, or at least they don't remember when they need. Um, and so this is, I think, the idea of the mental health first aider, which is a figure where people can go, they can chat. Uh, uh, there are people um, who, are, who learn how to listen without judging, and then they have a list of resources that they can offer uh, where whoever needs can go and ask for support. What is the relationship between the university and something like being a first aider? The university has specific people who are trained 
to uh, as a mental health first aider trainer. So by attending this course and like attending, you know, uh, specific courses, you can become a trainer. And uh, so I think they are employed uh, from the university and then they provide this training for free uh, to those working at the university. So we had like a, a team group, this especially during the COVID uh, pandemic, where if someone knew uh, or needed, uh, uh, you know, help, uh, there, there was like a group of mental health first aid there. You basically have the certificate, you have the title, you can put it in your signature, you can use it in UCL, we, we, you could become also a um, well-being champion, uh, which are, you know, reference people where available for all the students and staff members that they can just be contacted. I recently uh, learned that in, um, so earlier in August, we had the first conference on researchers' mental health observatory, and it's something that has been uh, funded by the European Union. It's one of these projects that they call a cost action, and uh, they, they tend to explore a new a new discipline that in which we don't have enough evidence yet, and then they try to put people, pull people from all over Europe, you know, to see also internationally. Yeah, but it has a European focus on on bringing evidence on things that 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 we don't know yet of a topic, and then create some recommendations. So that's what I'm, I was saying. Like I do see that from the university sector, there's really this interest also in participating in this. Um, but uh, and there I started seeing more this um, mental health first aider and uh, and that there are different universities that are really trying to bring it on board. Uh, but there is also an initiative um, uh, at European level that is, is pushing for universities to cooperate more in certain areas and, and become, let's say, more European universities, no? And you would tell me, well, all, all universities in Europe are also European universities, but, well, this is a kind of a more uh, in deep in the level of integration. And one of them focuses very much on mental health, well-being, not mental health, it's on well-being, well-being of researchers, well-being of staff, well-being of students, you know? And it's called UniWell. So there are different things that, are, that I see happening and, and, and maybe what Sehar was mentioning before, is it a generation issue? And I, I, I would agree with her that I think it is, you know? It's, um, we even ask uh, myself, I, I feel I'm, I'm myself not yet prepared, to be honest, on, on some mental health or how to face it or how to, you know, we don't have it that normalized. And, um, and, and that's something that we would need to really speak more about, but then start engaging more in. Just to give you an idea, um, at my institution, we do have um, each faculty has a well-being um, person, a well-being officer, and that's only been a position that's been around for maybe three or four years. But that person's an academic, and this is attached to their role, and and part of that is is doing things to help staff with their mental health and general well-being. So, for instance, it might be things like free yoga lessons. It might be things like discounts on various products. Um, something that they do offer, which was a massive help to me, was counselling. So, um, so I was given when I became poorly, I had counselling that was arranged through a separate organisation, but it was arranged via my, my place of work. And I'll be honest with you, talking therapies, I was extremely sceptical. I was like, 
I don't really like talking about this. I don't really see the benefit of it. And I think that's another example of, of generational differences. I think even I was a little bit set in, set in my ways there. Um, but God, does it make a difference? Um, we've all got access to the um, Headspace app. You can use that and it will teach you how to take deep breaths, how to meditate, um, lots of different inspirational messages. But it's basically a program that you can work through. And our institution has paid for that for the entire academic year that, that we can use. So I do think things are certainly changing. And I do think certainly as, as we move forward, I think you mentioned, Daniel, as, as the workplace begins to change and we are bringing in a new generation of people, that the conversation will be a lot more transparent around mental health. Well, as we wrap up, I'd like to ask what advice you might have for early career academics who are now looking forward to a career in academia. How can they best prepare for the unique challenges that they might face? I just think, um, you know, if I was going back to my younger self, what advice would I would, would I give myself? And it's, it is basically that you, you can't please everybody all of the time. It's, it's practically impossible. Um, teaching has always been a passion of mine. And I think for, for all of us, we love doing our jobs. We love teaching. Teaching's a vocation. You know, it, it gives me a buzz being in the classroom. And I have a real sense of responsibility for the students that I'm, I'm going to teach because ultimately, that's going to be part of their degree. That's going to be part of their outcome. So I take my job very seriously. And I absolutely love teaching. It's I describe the classroom as my natural habitat. It's where I'm the most comfortable. But a sick, poorly lecturer is no good to anybody. It's as simple as that. If you're sick because of your mental health, you can't function, you can't perform, you're not going to get the best out of yourself, let alone your students. I think my advice would be that sometimes it's okay to say no. And my second advice would be is to listen to your body, really. Stefano? It is extremely important to ask when you don't know something, when you feel that you might benefit for some help, there's no uh, nothing bad of asking for help and support. Something that I always try to remember to uh, my students is that if you feel stressed and you need some help and support, that this doesn't have, it doesn't have anything to do with your ability to be a wonderful scientist. So recognizing that you might benefit of having help and support is just a way of some sort of having some sort of self-awareness of what are your boundaries and what is your limit and when you actually need some support. And the last thing is also to always try to listen to what other people are saying and listen to what they are sharing. You don't have to follow their advice. Um, but it's really useful to listen to other people's stories as many as you can. Each of us has our own story on, and each of us ended doing specific job, maybe not the one we wanted to do at the beginning. But each story is really important because it gives you examples on how people deal with uh, some issues, and also it normalizes many uh, situation which are really common especially in research. Sylvia would you like to add anything? What I say to our early career researchers is to really remain true to themselves and focus and be motivated for what they really find important and to go back to their missions many of them when they start well many all of them when they start they have a clear purpose that starts being perverted a little bit by the possibilities that they find of funding 
or the possibilities that they find in publishing. And I always tell them like, do truly what you want and try to see what is in the system that you would actually like to change and be vocal about it. So one of the things that we are also trying to, to encourage to our early career researchers is if there are things that don't work well, do tell us because we do also influence so thanks to our organization. You know, we manage to change and promote change that, uh, that is, let's say, much more systemic than what we may, may believe. And, and on that, um, Stefan, Stefan was, was mentioning, for example, on the, um, you know, the deadlines of calls for funding. And we have a direct uh, possibility to talk to the European Commission, for example, as a funder of European projects and tell them, hey, this deadline actually doesn't work for these and these and these reasons. And this is one example, but there are many others. Um, we are also involved in, in an initiative precisely to change the, re the reform of research assessment and to question you know, the lack of emphasis that has been going into teaching, um, the predominance of research, the important that is now to have impact on society on other ways of communicating the science we, we produce. And there is a possibility for change. So not only be aware of what is it and protect yourself, but also engage in making the system different. That would be my, my main advice. Fantastic. Well, I think this is a really productive conversation. So I want to thank you all for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find a transcript of our conversation as well as more information about our guests and the programs they spoke about on our website. I'd like to thank Clementine Jolly for her help with today's episode and Alex Junius of This Is Distorted. 